If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be delving into this idea of scars and that each one of us at some point somewhere in life have received a scar or earned a scar different ways. And those scars, each one of them, tell a story, tell the story of the incident, but then also of the healing. And um, over these next few weeks, as we kind of dig into this idea of what is a scar and where do your scars, where do our scars come from? One of the main things that I want you to grasp is that the scar is an opportunity to tell a story of healing and what God has been doing. Because even though we have scars on the outside, the deepest scars many times are the scars that are on the inside um, that have been hurt. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and we'll begin there. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 25, it says this, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. How many of you have feel shame? Don't raise your hands, because we all feel shame, right? To some degree, all of us feel some shame. Can you imagine what it would be like to live life without shame? That'd be pretty freeing, wouldn't it? That would be a powerful life for us to live life without shame. And so here we are at the beginning of the universe, the beginning of all time of earth as we know it, and God created everything. And as he was creating it, he continually said, this is good, this is very good. And then the very last thing, man and woman are created, and they're walking together in the garden with God. They were naked, that means without clothes still, okay? They were without clothing, vulnerable and exposed, and felt no shame. Try going to HEB without clothes this week. And saying, I don't feel any shame. I mean, it, you know what I mean? But that's this idea of feeling without shame. What would that be like? Because most of us, once we get past kindergarten, we have some shame. We have stuff that we hold on to, that we want to hide from someone or from others. That that's the source of our shame are the things that you don't want anyone else to know about. That you hide, you'll clean all of your house and you'll shove stuff into that back corner closet and that you hope no one thinks that that's the bathroom and opens that door and all the stuff falls out. Right? Because everything else is cleaned up, but that place is the place where you're like, I'm shoving it in there. What's in that closet that you don't want anybody to see? That's the source of your shame. So here Adam and Eve at the beginning of the universe are living life like we would love to live it. There is no shame. They are with one another, and they're in the garden, and they're eating, they're having parties, they're going to the parks, they're doing all the different stuff that you do in life, and there's no shame, and they encounter God. So they go to worship, and God comes and sits with them, and they are naked, and they feel no shame. And then sin enters. So here we are at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, and look at the beginning of chapter 3. The serpent shows up and the serpent begins to have a conversation. The devil begins to have a conversation with Eve and they're kind of going back and forth and talking and all that. And then let's look at verse six of Genesis chapter three. The woman was convinced. In other words, the serpent had convinced her that this apple, this fruit or whatever that she looked at was appealing and that it would provide for her what she needed. That there was somewhere along the way there was this sense of there was something more. Surely there's something more than this 
than feeling and doing life without shame with relationships and with God. Surely there's more. And she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. Isn't temptation that way? <laughs> you see it and you're, you're convinced that that is the thing, that you're, something's missing. And so you see it and you're like, mm, yeah, that, that is it. And so we, we pursue it and it looked delicious and she wanted it, the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, which is an interesting thing. This means this entire time while the serpent, the devil, is convincing her and tempting her and convincing her that he's there the entire time. He didn't say nothing. The first instance that we see where a man should step up and he didn't step up and didn't leave. That's a whole other sermon. And she ate it. And she gave it to some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Now think about this. It hasn't been that long. They've been experiencing life to its fullest without shame. They've been experiencing it, and they've been in relationship with God. And then, look, they saw this fruit. There's something more. Surely there's something more. And they take a bite. They share in that. And then look at verse 7. At that moment, the moment that they took the bite, at that moment, their eyes, not just their physical eyes, but their souls, were opened. And suddenly, or immediately, they felt what? Shame at their nakedness. The very thing, just a few passages before, that they were able to experience the fullness of the garden and what it meant to be in relationship with each other and what it meant to be in relationship with God, they were, they were enjoying it. And somewhere along the way, something said, there's got to be more than this. And so they were enticed by something more. And then immediately they felt shame. And so what did they do? They found some fig leaves and covered up. See, this is interesting because one of the things about the church is that we enter into a place like this, so many times people say, how are you doing? And you say, fine, I'm good. Well, because you're afraid, because out here you're afraid that if someone actually knew that you weren't good, what would they think about you? So you cover up and hide. So the very first thing that the consequence of sin is shame, that suddenly they realize that they were naked and they covered up and hid from one another. And then what happens? Look at verse 8. So they're hiding from each other. They're covering up. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, they weren't in Texas, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. They heard God walking, so... They knew his voice. They knew his steps. They were in relationship with him. And so, again, before they didn't have shame. And so now they've got shame, so they're hiding from one another. And now they hear that God is coming. And so what do they do? They hide. They hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord God called the man, where are you? Now, this is one of those things I think God's just having fun. Because God's God. He already knew where they were at. And so he's just walking around going, hey, where are you? Woohoo! Where are you? And I imagine Adam and Eve are behind like a palm tree. <laughs> shivering like, he's going to find us. He's going to find us. And he's going to know we're naked. We're up to something. 
And God shows up and says, where are you? Imagine the brokenness of God's heart. See, he had been able to experience relationship with his children, and there was no shame. They were completely vulnerable in worship before God, and at that very moment that they are disobedient, all of a sudden their eyes are open, and now that they realize that God can see them for who they really are, and immediately they begin to look and say, I'm not good enough. Immediately Eve begins, hey, Am I beautiful enough for my husband, Adam? Am I strong enough for my woman? And then God shows up. And the inadequacy and the shame that happens. Where are you? God's calling. He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I phoned you and I hid. I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. Because I was ashamed. Let me give you a definition for shame. It's this deep sense that you are unacceptable because something that you have done is wrong. Or that you've been wronged. Or that you're in association with something or someone that is wrong. So you may have a family or something like that. So your name or whatever, you're, you're associated with that. And so because of that, there's this sense of being unacceptable, that you are unacceptable because of that. You feel exposed. You feel humiliated. You feel dirty. You feel contaminated. Some other words that kind of maybe give us a little bit different understanding or a better, broader understanding of shame is the word inferior, weak, a reject. So maybe you're, you've experienced this. It doesn't take us long to experience this feeling of shame or weak or inferiority because playground happens at school. And so if you're not the best athlete, what happens? You're not the first person picked, but you're the last person. And so if you've experienced that, you're the last person picked. And so that means you're not really even picked. You're just the last available person, and they have to take you. So you have that sense, and so immediately there you're like, because oh. everybody that knows, okay, yep, we've got, hmm, we got him or her, and everybody goes, oh, great, because you're already the built-in excuse for their failure. If they don't win, you're the excuse because we had to have, we didn't even pick them, right? Or maybe it's not sports, maybe it's math or whatever it is. And so somewhere along the way, you've experienced what it means to be inferior, what it means to be weak, what it means to be an outcast. You've experienced that shame of being on the outside, of not being good enough, inadequate, being humiliated and embarrassed, different, ignored or ridiculed, insulted, a loser, Maybe even feeling unclean, defiled, disgraced, worthless, filthy, discarded, disgusting, repulsive. What is it that you want to hide? What is it that you do not want anyone to know about you? That's our source of shame. That's what makes us feel inferior. That's what makes us feel weak. That's what makes us feel exposed. That's what makes us 
fill in the blank. That thing or those things that we hide that we don't want to be exposed is the source of our shame. And so we're constantly struggling and striving and, and cleaning up out here because we don't want anybody to know the depths in here. Because we're ashamed. So if someone truly knew us, they would reject us. We would be the last pick on their team. Especially the Christian team because we've cleaned up the last pick. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. You see, once we were without shame, but now we're in the midst of shame. A shamed person feels worthless in the eyes of each other and also in the eyes of God. It's just how it is. Whenever we experience shame, you see it in the garden. That immediately when they were disobedient, what happened? Adam and Eve, their relationship broke. They were able to do life completely unashamed. And now all of a sudden, because of disobedience, they looked and they were ashamed. And now here comes God and here's another layer of shame. It breaks our fellowship with one another. And it breaks our fellowship with God. So the very place that this should be the most freeing place to put out our shame is the place that we hide the best. The place that we should come in and say, hey, how are you doing this week? And we should be able to say, doing great or look at my scars. This week has been hell. Is the last place. The very place that we should come and come before the altar and say, God, here's who I am. You already know. I'm, I know I pretend to hide from you, but I'm coming and I'm saying, here's who I am. Sometimes because of this here, we don't do this here. To hide. In the Old Testament, there were several different illustrations of unclean and defiled, and one of them was the leper. The leper, anywhere that the leper would walk, would have to call out, I'm a leper. Imagine that, you're going to school or work, right? Hey, there's a new guy. Hi, I'm a leper. And what's everybody going to do? Right? So everywhere a leper walked, I'm a leper, I'm a leper, I'm an outcast, I'm unclean, I'm, devi- I'm defiled, I'm naked before you know my stuff, and I'm ashamed of it, but there's nothing I can do about it. So spread out, don't be a part of my life. So that sense of reject and being sent out. And so imagine living that life. And then there was also in the early days, whenever the community was together, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel together, they had a camp and they would camp together. And so imagine kind of like this table, there's this circle that they lived in and did community in together. And then if they touched something or they did something that made them unclean or defiled, then they were sent outside of the camp. And so you were exposed in that moment. You were vulnerable. You were told, hey, you are unclean. You are unable to be a part of this community. Go out of the community and get clean so you can come back in. Because the clean can't touch the unclean because that would then for make the clean unclean. And so in community, when they were defiled, whatever they did, they outside of the community. And so, again, they were outside and had to earn their way back in. That's the Old Testament. One of the beautiful things is that in Jesus' 
coming, he flipped that thing upside down. And so what used to keep people outside of the community, now Jesus opens up the deal and he says, let's take down the borders and the walls and those very things that defile you have would have kept you out of community. That's the very thing we want to kind of push you into community because the ones that are outcasts are the ones that need community the most. The ones that are defiled are the ones that need community the most. The ones that are rejected need community the most. And so Jesus says, the very things that have kept you out of the community are the very things, the reasons I want to draw you into community. Because those things that you're ashamed of, I want those to be exposed because the truth sets you free. So you see it. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus' mission. And that he's there in this, in this moment, he's there before the religious Teachers, it's beginning part of his ministry in, in Luke chapter 4, and his disciples are there, and he's in front of this group of people, and they, he says, he's, as his practice, he was going from synagogue to synagogue teaching, and so when they would do that, they would hand the teacher or the rabbi a scroll, and he would open up to the scroll to that specific spot that they were at that day, and he would open up and teach, read it, and then teach from it. Kind of, we kind of do that today, right? And so here Jesus is, it's his moment, he opens up the scroll to this passage in Isaiah chapter in Isaiah, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, this isn't just physically like you don't have enough money, but this is the poor in spirit, those who have a need for something more, that they don't have what they need. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that this is the time of the Lord's favor has come. So what once kept you from being in community, now we're pursuing you to be in community. God has flipped the script, so to speak. So in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew is called to be a disciple of Jesus. And Matthew was a tax collector. He was a chief sinner. He was the ones that you don't want to do anything with a tax collector. It didn't matter if he was Jewish or not. If he was collecting taxes, he was defiled and unclean. And Jesus walks up to Matthew, who's actually in his tax collector booth. He's defined by this. He's collecting taxes. And Jesus walks up to Matthew, the tax collector, the chief of sinners, and says, follow me. And he follows. And the next thing you see is they're having dinner together, Matthew and the tax collector and his disciples and the religious People have been invited, but they're like, he's a tax collector. I can't hang out with those people. And they're asked Jesus, Jesus, why would you hang out with this guy? And Jesus says, he's the very reason that I came. The hospital is not for well people. It's for sick people. Community is for sick people. Community is for the ashamed. Community is for the broken. I've come for people like Matthew who were doing probably the very reason he's even a tax collector is to find purpose and meaning. And I want him to find purpose and meaning in following me. He was an outcast brought into community. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 and following, there's a story of a, a woman who hadn't been able to go to worship in a while. And so church was her thing. She had grown up in church. She loved church. She was passionate about going to church. And because of something in her life that kept her from going to worship, it had been a little bit. And so someone would call and ask her because they hadn't seen her a little bit and say, hey, Susie, you haven't been to church a little bit. And she began to make up excuses. So you can imagine excuse after excuse. My husband's at work or I've got to do this, the laundry, all the different things that we make up because of ashamed that we don't do community with people because we don't want people to know. 
She's built that up. So year after year after year. And then all of a sudden she hears about this Jesus guy and he's doing miracles and healings are happening and stuff. And so there's literally, there's a crowd of people around. I imagine it's kind of like the Houston Rodeo recently where, you know, there's people and you're bumping, you can't help but just, you're, you're in a mass of people and you're bumping up against people and you don't know who it is and you're like holding on. Did someone just pickpocket? You know what I mean? You're just this mass of people. And so Jesus is moving from one scene to the next scene. And as he's moving there, there's this mass of people following and wanting to, to kind of hear and see what he says every little breath that Jesus offers. And in the midst of this, this woman that is desperate, because for 10 years she hasn't been able to be in community, reaches out and hopes in faith that she can grab a little bitty piece of his shawl or something, grab the hem of his garment, and she reaches out and she grabs it. And immediately in the midst of that, with all these people bumping up and moving and stuff like that, Jesus senses someone has reached out and touched. And immediately he stops. Who touched me? And his disciples are like, dude, let's look. Look, the thousands of people here. There's been thousands of people. He says, no, 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 no. Someone reached out in faith. Someone reached out in desperation. Out of great shame, reached out. Now I imagine this woman who'd been hiding for 10 years and making up different reasons of why she couldn't worship. She didn't want to be exposed in that moment. But Jesus stops and says, who has touched me? And immediately turns and the woman says, ooh, me. And then guess what? She probably didn't want him to ask. Why? In that moment, everything that she was trying to hide, her closet was opened up. And Jesus says, why did you reach out in desperation? What are you ashamed of in such a way that you would hide and try to? And she tells him, I'm unclean. I'm defiled before the sight of the Lord, and I can't come to worship. I so want to be in community, and I can't. And I've been ashamed. I've been making up excuses, and the doctors haven't been able to fix it. And it's you, Jesus. You were my last-ditch effort, and I reached out just to hope upon hope upon hope that you would be able to heal me. Once who was an outcast. Once who was unclean, was made vulnerable, but was healed. She showed her scars. I'm sure she was extremely embarrassed, but she was healed. An outcast made unclean. And then in Matthew chapter 8, the story of the leper again, he's crying out, I'm a leper, I'm a leper. I'm a leper, and he hears that Jesus is coming by, and so in the midst of that, I'm unclean. Everybody knows he's unclean, so he just gets before Jesus, and he says, Jesus, in a posture of worship, he gets down on his hands and knees and his face, and he says, heal me. If you want, Lord, I know you can heal me. And again, his stuff is there. His scars are there, so there's no hiding it. But he's still in desperation says, I need what you've got. I want to be in community. One of the beautiful things about Jesus' ministry and his healing ministry in particular with lepers is every single time that he healed a leper, you know what he did? He touched the untouchable. 
So you can imagine if you're a leper, you've gone years upon years upon years where you're claiming, I'm a leper, I'm a leper, and people spreading, and the very thing that you are craving is community and touch. Again, researchers are showing us that touch is one of the most healing things that we offer and that we have in the medical community is someone to wrap your arms around and to hug you and that the lepers that are hurting and need healing, the very thing that probably even was the most important thing was that the clean Jesus touched him and be healed. The outcast brought into the community. The outcast brought into the circle. The unclean brought into the clean. What are we ashamed of? What are we afraid of? And then finally, I'll just turn with me to John chapter 4. This is a story of, if you've grown up in church and around church, you've heard it, but I want you to, to see it in this context. Again, Jesus' ministry is to, to reach out to the broken, to bring good news to the poor, to, to set the captives free, to set the oppressed free, and to let the blind see, to bring freedom where there is not freedom. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is along in his journey, and he's doing the ministry that he's doing. And he's, verse 3, it says, So he left Judea, and he returned to Galilee. And he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now this had to was this kind of, this is a divine appointment thing. He had to go. It's a, it's a tense of like he was forced, he was moved by the Spirit to go this way. Because generally, when a Jewish person is going from Judea to Galilee or vice versa, they didn't want to go through Samaria because that was unclean. Those were unclean people. They were half-breeds, all these different things. And so you didn't go through this. So if you were a good Jew, a practicing Jew, you would go to the boundaries and you would skirt Samaria, so there was no even inkling of the fact that you were become unclean in your travels. And so it's interesting that Jesus, a Jew, okay, we tend to forget that, chose to go through and had to go through Samaria. So he's on his journey through Samaria. And then verse 4 and verse 5, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from the long walk, so he sat wearily beside the well about noontime. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now the reason that it's important to know that it's noontime is because it's hot. So when it's hot, what do you get? Thirsty, right? It's okay. Yeah, it is. We get thirsty. And so Jesus has been on this long journey. It's been hot. It's dry. It's in the desert. And it comes to noontime, so he's there, and he sits down at noontime to draw water, which is a natural thing. His disciples have, have gone off into town to collect food and stuff. And so Jesus is like, I'm going to chill right here and prepare my next sermon notes or whatever he was doing. And so Jesus is doing his deal. And then up walks a Samaritan woman at noontime. Now, generally in those days when you were getting water, you would go early in the morning and late in the evening. Why? Because it's cooler it's an easier task, and again, you would do it in community because every, most of the women would gather together and say, hey, we've got our jars, we've got our stuff, we're going to go together in a community and gather water so we can gather more and bring it back together. And so they would be able, this was a community thing of women gathering together and going to the well. And so this woman alone comes to the well at noontime so that she won't be in community so she won't be with other people, 
And so here she is. She's surprised that someone's there. Because that's the very thing she didn't want. You ever been like that? Like, I've heard this at my house. I've got to put on clothes that look presentable, and I've got to get makeup, or I've got to get dressed, because I'm going to go to H-E-B, or I'm going to go to Walmart, and I'm going to... Right, I mean, because you can't load a LaGrange without seeing somebody, right? And so you just do it. I mean, if you're in a big city, you're like, who am I going to see? I don't care. But here, you're like, i got to get my hair done, you know, like I do. You know, you got to get all this stuff. you got to get ready, because you're going to see somebody. Well, she probably wasn't ready to see somebody. And so here she is at noontime, and she's surprised to see someone, and surprised that it's a... Jewish man. Because if someone was there, the last person that should be there is a Jewish man. And there he is. Of course, we know that he's more than just a Jewish man, but he is there. Verse 8, or verse 7 at the end of that. So soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. That's the natural question, right? I'm thirsty. Please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. Now, not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan woman. So she wasn't, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish idea, she wasn't not only not equal with them, but she was equal to an animal, a dog, or something like that. She was an object, not human. And so she's got this, the things that she's already dealing with culturally, she's ashamed of. And she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Because see, the very drink that she even gives him, if he's Jew and he's clean, then that very drink is going to make him unclean. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God, the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't even have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Because living water was a stream. It was a river. And so he, she's like, dude, you don't even know what living water is. You're at a well. This, is deep. this isn't living water. This is well water. Living water is, is down the street where there's a stream. And so they're having this little sarcasm thing going on, and I imagine. Where would you get this living water? Besides, smart guy that didn't even know what living water is, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks of this water from the well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. The woman who doesn't want to go to the well because she's ashamed, the woman who doesn't want to show up at any other time and do things in community because she's ashamed, has to show up at noontime. Jesus all of a sudden says, listen, I've got a special bottled water for you that you can come get anytime and you don't have to come back. So you don't have to deal with your shame. You don't have to deal with the stuff that you're dealing with. I'll just ship it to your house. And the lady's like, sign me up. Right? Isn't that how we do it? Like, if I don't have to deal with my shame, sign me up for something else. So here this woman, Jesus is like, listen, I'm about to give you some living water. It's the best water you ever drank. And you, that means you don't even have to come to the well anymore. She's like, oh, man, yeah. I'll even buy stocks in that. I want that water. 
It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Give me this water, for I am ashamed. I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here and get water. Wow. That's what I want. I don't want to have to come back here. But then look. Remember where the woman reached out and touched the cloak, and Jesus says, why are you touching? She got exposed. Here it is. Verse 16. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Oh, great. This guy knows me. I don't know how he knows me, but he knows me. I don't have a husband. So that moment, her shame is... The things she's been trying to hide, the reasons she goes at noontime, all that. It's, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five husbands. Shame after shame after shame after shame. Built up over the years. And we don't know why she's had five husbands. In those days, divorce is a little different. I mean, if you burn the macaroni, your husband could say, you're done, I'm out. Because it's just a view of, of different things. But So it doesn't tell us, but it doesn't matter because she has in some way she has failed. So therefore, time after time after time, she's been rejected. She's been outcast. She hasn't met all these different things, all the stuff that we've talked about, the different words of shame, all of those things describe what she's feeling. The very reason that she comes to the well at noontime is because of all this stuff. And then Jesus exposes that. But truth sets you free. So jump down. If you look at verse 39, in the midst of this whole thing, the embarrassment and the shame, the woman who didn't want to meet anybody in community at the well, she runs back to the village and says, look at me. I met this guy at the well and he told me everything I did that I have ever done. I'm totally exposed and vulnerable. All of my shame, all of my embarrassment, all of my stuff that I've been hiding or pretending to hide from you and community who know me, I've been trying to hide even from you, but now God himself has exposed me. He knows everything about me, and I am free to tell you, here are my scars, and here's my story of freedom. And next thing we see that the fields are wide under harvest as people are like, man, I need to know this Jesus. And they run as a community to meet him. And we see that after a few days, everyone comes back to this woman and says, because of your scars, because of your willingness to be vulnerable in that moment, I have found freedom because the truth has set me free. This Jesus guy, even though I have all of this stuff to be ashamed of the very moment that I say, here's my scars, here's my stuff, here's my outcast, my shame, my all of that. 
in that moment, Jesus spoke the truth. I love you. You're worth it. I've given my life for your shame. Truth sets us free. What are you hiding? What have you cleaned up and shoved into a closet? And you just hope beyond hope that no one ever opens that door. That's your shame. That's the stuff that you're hiding. The truth sets us free. So this morning what we're going to do is you're going to come forward and I'm going to give you a microphone and you're going to tell us all the things that you're ashamed of. Everybody's like, ah. Chris, close your eyes because we're leaving. But what I want you to get in that is, listen, you got to get it out. you got to let someone know what you're dealing with. Because the best and most beautiful place to do relationship is to walk naked before those that know you and to know no shame. To come before God and to worship and to know no shame. And the only way for that to happen is to be fully vulnerable and exposed with all of our warts and places we want to chisel off and chisel on and hair plugs or whatever and say, this is who I am. And to know that you're the first pick on the team. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see that you're the last pick or you're the middle pick, but you're the first pick because you're unique individual and he chose you for only what you can do but shame keeps us from experiencing the fullness of what God wants for us let's pray together Heavenly Father thank you That you are for the outcast. That you are for the exposed and vulnerable. That you are for the unclean, defiled, contaminated. That you go out of your way to call us by name and to bring us into community with you. That we are your first pick for your team. Father, I know that in this room that we have all kinds of stuff that we hide. Father, I pray that today and in this week that it would be a week where we just do some closet cleaning and that we allow you to speak truth, that we allow the light to shine in the darkness where that stuff can can grow and fester get uglier and nastier, but Father, may you just speak truth to your children so that we can experience 
what it means to walk and do life and to feel and to know no shame before you because you already know it all. But to not hide it. It's in your son's name that we pray. Jesus didn't come to just declare us not guilty. He came to make us whole and holy and usable. Jesus didn't come just to declare you not guilty, but he came to declare you whole and holy and usable for his kingdom. I guarantee you one of the things that holds most of us, if not all of us, back is the things that we feel shame for and unworthy about that keep us from doing the things that God has for us. Because we're like, why would you use me? Do you know my closet? And he's like, yes. I still pick you. You're my first pick. I've got a task. I've got a job. I've got a call. I've got a mission. Just for you.